And our passage this morning is taken from Romans chapter 15. We will conclude chapter 15 this morning. We'll look at verses 8 through 21. And as we're turning to our passage and getting settled, young Christians, young theologians, I want you to listen this morning to see if you can answer, who are our missionaries? That's kind of a trick question. You, you could answer it one way, but there is an unexpected answer to that question too. So listen closely. Who are our missionaries in our church? And then see if you can hear why Paul says we do missions in the first place. Why do missions at all? Why send people out to tell others about Jesus and his love and his salvation? Paul will explain it to us in our passage this morning. This is the gospel in the letter to the Romans. Paul has given to us all of this stout theology. And now at the conclusion of the letter, he's applying all of this theology. All good theology at the end of the day is practical theology. And if it's not... It's not good. And Paul tells us at the end of the letter now how to live in Jesus the Savior. For I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs and in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. As it is written, therefore I will praise you among the Gentiles and sing to your name. And again it is said, Rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. And again, Praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and let all the peoples extol him. And again, Isaiah the prophet says, The root of Jesse will come, even he who arises to rule the Gentiles. In him will the Gentiles hope. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. I myself am satisfied about you, my brothers, that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge and able to instruct one another. But on some points I've written to you very boldly by way of reminder, because of the grace given me by God to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles in the priestly service of the gospel of God, So that the offering of the Gentiles may be acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. In Christ Jesus then, I have reason to be proud of my work for God. For I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me to bring the Gentiles to obedience. By word and deed, by the power of signs and wonders, by the power of the Spirit of God, so that from Jerusalem... And all the way around to Illyricum, I have fulfilled the ministry of the gospel of Christ. And thus I make it my ambition to preach the gospel, not where Christ has already been named, lest I build on someone else's foundation. But as it is written, those who have never been told of him will see, and those who have never heard will understand. Lord Jesus, you are good to surround us with your gospel. It fills our liturgy and our songs. It fills the passages that you open to us from your scriptures week after week. It appears in strange places, even in the book of Leviticus. Strange regulations that seem outdated to us. But we heard the gospel in Leviticus this morning. In Jesus, all of our debts are canceled. 
And Jesus, all of our striving and all of our strength come to an end. And we have the divine strength of love and atonement and forgiveness and peace. So now again, we ask that you would fulfill our rest in all that you are and all that you've done for us. And above all, we ask that you would continue the battle in our lives and in our hearts to take away from us our idols. We love to manufacture idols. And yet we don't need them because we have the true lover in Jesus the Savior. And in him, the grace of dissatisfaction becomes the grace of satisfaction. Make us satisfied in all that you are and all that you have done. And for this we will give you thanks. We ask it in the name of the Father and the Son and the Spirit. Amen. And would you be seated. The New Testament book just before the letter to the Romans, the book of the Acts of the Apostles, tells us about Paul's three missionary journeys. He sets out on three expeditions and travels to proclaim Jesus as the Savior and to plant churches in which people can enjoy the salvation of Jesus. But here in the letter to the Romans, we have a different angle. In this text, Paul tells us why he did missions. He tells us the reason behind those proclamatory expeditions that he set out on through Asia Minor and the surrounding territories. What we have in this section of the letter is Paul's theology of missions and ministry. He lists it in the final verses of our section. I make it my ambition to preach the gospel not where Christ has already been named, lest I build on someone else's foundation. Someone else has already done that work, he says. But as it is written in the prophet Isaiah, those who have never been told of him will see, and those who have never heard will understand. I want to go to the never told ones, the haven't heard ones, Paul says. I want to go to them so that they will see and they will believe. Paul's going out into the world sounds very reminiscent of Christ's coming into the world. For Paul, missions comes from the incarnation. For Paul, missions flows out of the incarnation of Jesus. Missions takes place because the incarnation has taken place. This strange mystery, the ageless Son of God, swirling around in a a womb of amniotic fluid, being born into the world through labor pains. The almighty king of realms putting himself into a body that can't talk or hold its head up or feed itself. It can do nothing. The one who needed nothing, making himself an infant to be wrapped up in rags and laid out in a feed trough for a cradle... The birth of Jesus, as strange as it all is, was the truest missionary journey that was ever undertaken. The incarnation was about traveling a great distance to close that distance. It was about bringing sight and bringing understanding to people who had neither. 
You don't belong to a God who insists on missions for some arbitrary, unexplained reason. You belong to a God who is himself a missionary. I had a student while I was doing university ministry in South Carolina, and he was from New York. And he hated South Carolina because it wasn't New York. And everything he said about the place was disdain and contempt and disgust. He would endlessly complain and whine about how the cultural ways of New York were much better than the cultural ways of life in South Carolina. And one day, he was griping in his usual way over coffee. And I said to him, there's a simple solution to all of this. And he leaned in close. What? And I leaned in close like it was some piece of ancient wisdom about to be unveiled to him. And I said, move back to New York. You can't expect the state that fired the first shot for the Confederacy in the Civil War to make itself a colony of the Northeast. It won't happen. And your problem is you live here, but you never truly moved here. And you have to learn how to love this place for what it is. And you have to learn how to love this place for what it could be and should be. That's incarnation. Inhabiting a place with a true love, but a restless and dissatisfied love at the same time. That's the very thing Jesus did in his incarnation. He didn't sit back and complain about the fallen creation. He entered it. He filled it up. He loved it without falling himself. The mystery of the Incarnation is that Jesus loved us, and loving us, He made Himself one of us, so that He could make us fully us, to make us the us that should have been, the us that looks like Him. And that's how missions and the Incarnation are the same. They are living among the fallen, to love them out of the fallenness that they call Home sweet home. According to Paul, the missionary work of Jesus is comprehensive. It was for all types of people. His incarnation was very Jewish, according to verse 8. For I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised. He was a very conscientious, practicing Jew. Jesus made himself a Jew to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises made to the patriarchs. The Jewish fathers. God was showing that everything he had promised, he was accomplishing. Jesus conducted a Jewish mission in his incarnation to teach the Jews about true holiness. The holiness they were called to but couldn't achieve. So now holiness was coming to them. Holiness would be done to them by a Savior. But his incarnation was also for Gentiles. We have that throughout the passage, verses 9 through 13. The Gentiles are supposed to share in all of this. And it makes sense because the Gentiles have the same flesh that Jews have. They live in it differently. 
But Jesus inhabited that flesh known to Gentiles, eating, sleeping, feeling, bleeding, dying flesh. At the very same time he was conducting a mission to the Jews, he carried out a Gentile mission according to verse 9. He came in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. Throughout the Gospels, he's ministering to Gentiles. Do you remember the Samaritan woman? He met at a well. And the Syrophoenician woman who had suffered internal bleeding for years and he meets her in the street. And the Roman centurion who has the best proclamation of faith ever spoken. Jesus ministers to all of these non-Jews. Jesus' Gentile mission was to teach that God loves to make unclean things clean. And that may be the hardest word of the gospel to believe. God loves to make unclean things clean. It was announced this week that there is a single surviving photograph, just one, of John Fitzgerald Kennedy and Marilyn Monroe. It's long been rumored and suspected that the president and the starlet carried on an affair. But there's never really been any evidence of it until now. There is this photograph. It was taken at a Manhattan after-party following the President's birthday gala at Madison Square Garden in 1962. The Secret Service had been given specific instructions never to allow any photographs to be taken with the President and Miss Monroe. But the White House photographer didn't know this. And he pulled out his camera. And just before he snapped the picture... The president saw and tried to turn away. In the photograph, there's a glancing portrait of the president. You see how we try to duck out of the portrait frame of our sin? The Secret Service was sent afterward to collect the negatives, but they missed this one. It was in a drying machine in the photography studio. And now all these years following, the photograph has surfaced and it's on sale. The president's biggest secret, his worst scandal, is being auctioned off in high-end art houses. Our sin always comes out and it's always put on display And it seems to always be put up for sale. But here's the cleanness that Christ brings to us. He doesn't destroy the photographs. And he doesn't destroy the negatives. He leaves them hanging on display in the art galleries. But he destroys the market for their sale. Nobody wants to buy these things anymore. He ruins the market in our own hearts. We're not clinging to these memories. He's turned our interests and our desires and our pursuits even so that we don't want to collect these things and gaze at them and cherish them and assign to them some secret value. These things are just artifacts 
of a past that no longer defines us and holds us. And now we can walk past the two-dimensional photographs and realize that we aren't trapped inside the frame of those sins anymore because Christ has embarked on a mission to bring us out of our homey fallenness and to give us to Himself. That's the work of His incarnation. That's His missionary work with us. And that's how Paul explains His work with the Gentiles down in verse 14. I'm satisfied that you yourselves are full of goodness. He's speaking there of the transforming goodness of Christ. It's not some goodness that lives in them. The goodness of Jesus has come into you and it's made you different. You're filled with knowledge and able to instruct one another. You tutor each other in the gospel, he says. On some points, I've written to you very boldly by way of reminder. Do you hear what he's saying there? I've scolded you. I'm not afraid to scold you. Sometimes you need it. And that's grace too. By the grace of God, I am a minister of Christ Jesus who makes unholy Jews like me holy and unclean Gentiles clean. I'm a priest of the gospel of God and the offering of God-loving, Christ-following Gentiles is acceptable and sanctified because the Holy Spirit is at work in them. And then in verses 18 through 20, Paul says, and by the way, I love serving this missionary king. I love serving this missionary God and Savior. I love being made one of his missionaries. It's a thrill not just to live in his redemption, but to enjoy it more by carrying it to others. Not just to be taken hold of by his redemption, but to see him taking hold of others using what he's already done in me. Missions, according to Paul, is the incarnation of Jesus still reaching into our sin-languishing world with truth and life and grace and peace. The surprising gospel of the incarnation and missions which comes out of the incarnation is Jesus pursues us when we're not pursuing Him. And who belonging to Jesus wouldn't want to be part of that? What's most surprising about missions, I think, is what Paul says in verse 19. From Jerusalem all the way around to Illyricum, I fulfilled the ministry of the gospel of Christ. Paul traveled far and wide, but you don't have to travel at all. Missions isn't somewhere you go. Missions is wherever you are. Because wherever you are, you have the gospel with you. Wherever you are, you have the good news of Jesus Christ. Wherever you are, you have the good news of His redemptive coming into the world. And you may never have thought of yourself as a missionary, but He has always thought of you this way. It's in verse 14. You're filled with all knowledge, and you're able to instruct one another. You are the heralds. You are the messengers. You are the carriers of the good news. You may go into another culture very different from the one you've known all your life. Or you may stay in the one you grew up in. But either way, you're a missionary. 
Because you belong to a missionary God. It was true for Paul, and it's true for us. And we're able to do missions as the church of Jesus because we have been missioned. We do missions to others in the same way that they were done to us. Missions means nothing more complex than this. The redemptive love of Jesus finds us in our brokenness and then it pulls us out of that brokenness. But usually we want one half of that statement or the other. Some of us want to be found in our brokenness. And that's where we want to be left. That's where we want to stay. We want to be endlessly commiserated. We want to be pitied. We want to be fawned over. We want to hear an endless chorus of, oh, poor you. We act like we've been carried off and admitted to a hospice. But that's not the gospel. The gospel calls us to something more. The gospel says that Jesus always has other plans for you and the church and the kingdom are not a hospice where the broken go to die. The gospel says that because Jesus is a redeeming Savior, your brokenness has a condemned notice tacked to its forehead. And Jesus means to make off with your heart and with your mind and with all of the rest of you and to leave your brokenness empty-handed and groping and calling after you but unable to hold on to you any longer. And then some of us want to live in the other half of the statement. Some of us do want to be pulled out of our brokenness without ever having to know about it, like it would happen in our sleep. Some of us don't want to be found in our brokenness. We don't want to have to face it, and we certainly don't want to have to do the hard work of forsaking our brokenness. We want something closer to surgery, where we're put under, and the sin and the dead parts are cut out, and we wake up in recovery eating ice cream and receiving visitors. Simple as that. But that isn't the gospel either. And Jesus shows you the very thing you don't want to see. The brokenness and the sin that you hug around yourself. And he wants to open your eyes to show you this. So that you say with your own heart and your own lips. Wait a minute. I love that. That's what I've given myself to. That's what I've given so much of my heart and my life to. That's what owns me and holds me captive. Why did I think that was so valuable? Where did I think that would get me? He wants you to be repulsed at it. But be clear, he's not repulsed by you. He loves you jealously. And that's why he's changing your tastes and your desires and your longings and your pursuits. The loving force of the incarnation and the cross and the resurrection is to pull us and entice us and to move us to abandon our comfortable sins instead of the old way of abandoning the Savior 
who has paid all costs to love us and have us. Instead of abandoning the lover for lies and idols and abusive lovers. The gospel is the pursuing Jesus is causing us to pursue him. Skeptics, this this last verse in this section that we've been in this morning is for you. In fact, you're written into it. Your name isn't there, but your picture is certainly there. Those who have never been told of him will see. Those who have never heard will understand. Are you beginning to see? Are you beginning to sense why sinners need Jesus? Are you beginning to understand? Do you understand why you need Jesus? And maybe he's pursuing you. If you need to hear more about all of this, come find me. I'll talk to you for as long as you're interested to talk about these things. Last week, I started to tell you the myth of Orpheus, but I never finished the story. Orpheus was the son of Apollo and the muse Calliope, and Orpheus had the gift of music. He was the master singer. He could stop men and monsters and gods with his songs. And Orpheus marries Eurydice, and on their wedding day, Eurydice is dancing in celebration through the meadow, and she steps on a serpent, and she dies instantly from the venom and the snake's bite. And Orpheus tried to sing his grief away, but it didn't work. So he went after Eurydice to get her back. He found a back entrance to the underworld, and he went down into death to retrieve his bride. And he moved through the crowds of the dead until he'd come all the way up to the throne of Hades, the king of the underworld, and he presented himself there, and he sang his request that Eurydice be allowed to return with him to life. The song was so moving that the ghosts wept. The monsters of the underworld stopped silent. And cold-hearted Hades himself was moved. And he agreed to the request on one condition. Eurydice could follow Orpheus out of the underworld all the way to the upper world. But Orpheus must never look back to make sure that Eurydice was following. And almost to the surface, overcome with doubt that Hades had let her follow. Overcome with doubt that perhaps Eurydice had been distracted or lost her way and she had stopped following. Almost out, Orpheus glanced back and Eurydice who was right behind him. Eurydice, the nearly redeemed, the almost rescued, was snatched back into darkness and death forever. Orpheus went back down to Hades and asked for another chance. And it was refused. Now the differences between that myth And our story, the story of incarnation, the story of missions, the story of salvation, the differences are obvious. Jesus doesn't fail to save his love. Jesus doesn't fail to save us, the redeemed, the church. 
And Jesus makes no bargains with the Lord of death. He doesn't agree to any conditions that Satan tries to lay on him. What Jesus undergoes, in fact, is not what Satan requires at all. It's what he himself requires. Jesus is submitting to his own judgment. And that's how we know that he's determined to save us. And that's how we know that he's able to save us. And even more than that, through it all, Jesus never leads blindly, hoping that you'll be able to follow him on your own. In other words, Jesus never takes his eyes off of you. He was looking at you when he embraced righteousness and repelled sinfulness while he was wearing your flesh. He was looking at you when he suffered every bit of anguish on the cross. Every bit of what is now a finished anguish on the cross. He was looking at you when he pushed his way out of the tomb. He was looking at you when he sent missionaries to carry the good news of his redemption from Jerusalem across the entire globe. And he's looking at you when he sends you to your neighbors, to your city, to your circles of acquaintance and friendship, to your families, carrying to them the priceless treasure of salvation that pursued and won you. Incarnation, which turns into missions, means emphatically, energetically, enthusiastically, holding nothing back. He has had his pursuing eye set on you the whole time. And that is your joy. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your mission of redemption, pursuing us in the weakness of our flesh to bring us to share in the glory of your righteous flesh. And we long to see your kingdom of light and life dealing out heavy losses to the kingdom of darkness and death. Give us the otherworldly joy of seeing those who have not been told of you, those who have not heard, Give us the joy of seeing them come to hear and believe and know Jesus in his rapturous love. And give us the joy of seeing and feeling and striving for sin being put to death in our own bodies and lives that we may be filled with your righteousness and your grace and your truth. And give us these joys by making us your missionaries. Give us Paul's thrill. We thank you, our great missionary God, and now we ask that you'll bless our proclamation in and to this city, to our neighbors and to our friends. And we pray that you'll allow us to see startling conversions. We cannot convince or talk anyone into believing and following Jesus. But you are the lover and the changer of hearts. And by your spirit, we ask you to do it. 
And we ask you to work through those who have been sent out from us. The Bartons in Ecuador. The Rays in Cambodia. Luke Smith in Cambodia. The Newsoms on their way to do RUF at Michigan State. The Bobos on their way to do RUF at Arizona State. The Scruggs doing RUF at SMU. All those whom you have sent out from us to carry the joyful good news that Jesus has come into our fallenness to bring us out of that fallenness. Bear fruit in the words and the works of those whom you carry to those fields. And for them and for ourselves, we ask you to allow us to say what Paul said in this passage. In Christ Jesus, we have reason to be proud of our work for God. In Christ Jesus, we are pleased with what he has done with us. That's the inheritance we want. And that's the only inheritance we want. And make us dissatisfied until it's ours. And now help us in faith and repentance as we eat and drink. Let us confess our sin and allow us once again to bow and submit to righteous obedience and humble following. Lord Jesus, you know your flock and you know our weaknesses and your strength and grace are sufficient to us in all things and the worst of our sins is removed from us and we are given the endless indestructible life of Jesus now. And we pray that eating and drinking, the body and the blood of Jesus given for righteousness in our flesh would call us to a joyful life of godliness, newness, boldness, and hope. And for all of this, we will thank you.